It's not like we think of conspiracy theories as like the X-Files, like there's one or two guys and they're down in the basement and they have like this complicated theory and they're loners and they're weird. It's not like that anymore. And this is, you know, I don't know that, that the internet has made conspiracism more common, but it has hooked people up with one another and it's made it a, a communal activity and that's given it a new strength. Welcome to another episode of Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner, and today we have on the program Bonnie Christian. Bonnie is a fellow alum of Bethel Seminary. She, too, has a master's in Christian thought. She's currently the editor-in-chief at The Week. She also writes for Christianity Today, USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, CNN, Politico, Time, Reason, National Interest, The American Conservative, and so many more publications. Too many to list here. She's the author of a brand new book coming out in October of 2022 entitled Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. If by the end of this podcast you go, boy, I really need to have this book, great. There is a pre-order link in the description or the show notes of this podcast. Speaking of books, if you didn't know, if you weren't aware of this, I too am releasing a book. It's my first ever book release. The book is entitled Disordered, A Christian Journey Through the Problem of Evil and Suffering. Early pre-orders are now available. This book is based on the popular Problem of Evil series that I did over the course of a a two-year stretch covering over 2,000 years of Christian theology Uh, even going back into the Old Testament, into the Hebrew Bible, and working our way from the first century all to the 20th century to compare the different answers that Christians throughout time have given to the questions we might have about evil and suffering. I have, in some sense, been working on this book really my entire life. But uh, more recently, it's it's been a project I've been working on for several years, and I'm so excited to get it into your hands. If you participate in the early pre-order, you will also be able to participate in the um, book club that we're going to be doing when the book releases, hopefully by September, where I will be leading online on Zoom uh, group discussions where we'll go through chapter by chapter and discuss the major ideas, the questions you have about evil and suffering. I think it'll be really informative, really special experience together. And so uh, if you want to participate in that, you can do so. Of course, all those who are supporting on Patreon at the Theology 201 level or higher will automatically get access to that link where you can participate in those those group discussions on Zoom. Finally, if you would like to help support this podcast and you want to see it remain ad-free, then I encourage you to become a Patreon supporter on Patreon. You'll find a link to that in the description as well. All right, enough of me talking. Let's get into the conversation today with Bonnie Christian. I'm really excited today to be joined by my friend Bonnie Christian. She's got a brand new book coming out um, in October. Is that right, Bonnie? Yep, October October 11th. Release date. Bonnie was on the podcast, I want to say it was two years ago. And she got me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and, did and, I? Yeah, you did. Not, no, not in a really bad way. Um, you know, last time, last time Bonnie was on, we had a great conversation. Um, it was either in late 2019 or early 2020. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and we were we were talking about the the QAnon movement and how it was 
um, spreading and impacting local church communities. And, and coming out of that conversation, I, it was um, that podcast got a lot of attention because I think at that time there was a decent amount of people that were familiar with some of the conspiracies that were going around, but they didn't necessarily have a name for it. And so to name it and then the great work that you did kind of explaining its origins was incredibly helpful. Uh, I ended up coming out of that um, really feeling like a sense of calling to like maybe address specifically pastors that are dealing with this. And I recorded a video on on YouTube that um, like probably by my standards, not like normal viral standards, went fairly viral and it got the attention of like, CNN and Vice News, and then all of a sudden, Bonnie, I was getting um, emailed to or mess, uh, not email, like paper mail sent to my church office um, with like people writing and showing me conspiracies, like anonymous letters. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Um, no, I mean the. I think the the only time that I've ever really experienced significant online harassment for things I've written have been related to QAnon. Um, and I had to turn, usually it's like on Twitter, that's sort of like the main like place where I catch flack for, for things from time to time. But with QAnon, I, I had to restrict who could comment on my personal Instagram because people were coming, like finding a photo of my dog and like writing abusive comments on it because they were mad about some article I'd written. Um, it was very interesting. Like that level of vitriol came solely from that topic. Well, I hope the money you made from the satanic <laughs> liberals was good enough. Yeah, I mean, it's good money. George Soros sends me a check every week. Like right. I, I can't turn that down. I got mouths <laughs> to feed. I know. It was like I was getting those comments too. Like you must be a paid for shill. And I was like, God, I kind of wish I was. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, I got two hundred and ten article dollars for that article. That was uh that was my price. <laughs> right. Big liberal media. Um and we, we I do want to talk in a, a little bit about, you know, perceptions in media or distrust of media. That's certainly one important subject that comes up in your book. But I, I'd like to maybe begin by having you set this the table a little bit. Um because in the beginning of the book you talk about some in the introduction and maybe even in the first chapter in this new book, you talk about some situations, some like personal experiences that you had where you noticed um, like sudden behavioral changes in friends, people in your, maybe your own church community or even among family members that were suddenly, it was like a, a pretty drastic temperamental change. You mentioned uh, instances where it was you or friends of yours that would talk about how all of a sudden, you know, certain family members would be who were at once like fairly normal people to have conversations with were all of a sudden and even the most mundane conversations bringing in really politically charged, um, like random out of the blue conversations into the middle of mundane conversations. Um, you know, you talk about divisive splits in church communities and probably while that is nothing new, um, one of the things I think you highlight, I'd love to have you share is that, I think one of the most difficult things is that church communities have always had difficult and challenging splits, but maybe one of the things you noticed is that um, maybe even in your own personal experience that the, there maybe was at least, and maybe this is fanciful thought, but it seemed like once upon a time, even though church splits happened, there might've been an agreed upon methodology for how people could actually come 
to know the truth. And then you just have differences of opinion on the conclusion. You talk about how it seems like even in your own experience, but in the stories of other church communities, that divisive splits are happening and they seem to be happening even in a way that reveals there's not even like a shared framework for how someone could even, how a group could even come to a process of discerning what they believe and what is true. Um, I don't think you're alone in asking this question and others are asking it like what is going on in our world it seems like i think of zoolander uh you know this always comes to mind the the scene where uh, will ferrell i think his name is mugatu right and he's like i feel like i'm taking crazy pills i don't know how many times i've said that in the last four or five years what in the world's going on bonnie and why um why have you felt a particular fascination or attraction to trying to like figure out this puzzle of what's going on yeah, so I think I, I tell, I want to say, like, four stories in the introduction that you're thinking about. Um, but the church one is probably a good one to to start with. Um, so the short version is that uh, I live in Pittsburgh now, but I lived in, in Minnesota um, for seven years. And I'm deeply involved with our, our church. There was a small Mennonite community, super, super strong community life. Everybody deliberately living in the same neighborhoods together you know, like shoveling each other's sidewalks, like we're at each other's houses multiple times a week. And so the denomination decided they wanted to do, as is constantly happening now, a vote on gay marriage and ordination. And the way it works is everybody's like congregations are supposed to send a representative to like vote basically. And so we were like, all right, well, let's, you know, do our due diligence, figure out how we're going to vote. So we're going to have a congregation-wide discernment process. It's a small congregation. So like that sort of made sense. Um, what we found out very quickly was not only that we did not agree on this question, which I think we had, most of us had just assumed everyone agreed with us. Um, it was not true. We found out that, but we also found, as you alluded to, that we didn't agree on how to make the decision um, and that these differences even cut across our opinions on the actual question at hand. So we had people on on both sides who had who are coming to this with like very different decision-making processes. And honestly, like a lot of our, our most difficult moments were about not even the disagreement, strictly speaking, but like one person wants to say, like, let's look at these scriptures. And someone else is saying like, I just, that's, I have to think about, you know, my, my friends who are gay or um, my parents and their views on this and like what it would be f mean for me to go to a church that takes one position or the other. And it was just these, these different ways of approaching the issue. And so that sort of highlighted for me, uh, you know, it's not just the question of how do we, like, what do we think we know? What do we believe? What do we think is true? But like, how are we reaching those decisions? How are we deciding what is knowledge and how are we, how are we choosing, like, how are we forming our beliefs? Um, and it's, it's so much more, it's so much bigger than just like that one conversation at our church because of the, the whole, like the scale of the information environment in which we all live now where we're all day, like people will say, oh, people don't read anymore. But the reality is we read all day long. Like we're constantly coming across new information. You have you know, two minutes in line at the grocery store, you whip out your phone, you're reading something. And just the sheer amount of, of decisions that we're making and like um, 
knowledge or, you know, is it knowledge? Is it factual? I don't know that we're acquiring. Like we have to be thinking, I think, more deliberately about like, how are we doing? Like, what is the process? And, and how are, what sort of people are we engaging in that process? Yeah. So like, let's take this particular example without focusing so much on the topic itself, because I think that's your point in the book is it's not even so much about the topic, which is a deeply important topic for church communities. The thing that was most unsettling was maybe you would imagine, you know, you're in a, you're in a Protestant context. So you might assume, you know, Protestant context, you know, you're not Calvinist or, but you still have perhaps this, this, uh, even if you wouldn't go, we're super strong on sola scriptura, you might go, well, one of the ways we would figure out this particular subject might be to like go to the scriptures and then we could go and say, hey, person A and person B, they disagree on how to interpret this text. And you might go, oh, well, you know, that makes sense. But when person A is like, I think I should, we should start with the scriptures and person B is like, forget that. Like we're talking about real people. And then another person goes like, I, why would we trust either one of those things? You know, they might appeal to natural law or some other, some other thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, we can't even figure out how to come to the truth or at least a, an app, you know, an appearance of the truth. We can't even agree on that practice. Um, and that, that's, I, I've, I've experienced that too. I mean, you know, we've experienced our own church community and past church communities where it's like, all right, like when that happens, it's immensely frustrating. And it, it, I think the frustration isn't even that we can't just get to the conclusion. I think you mentioned this, Bonnie, the frustration maybe a deeper frustration might be that sense of like alienation where you go, I actually thought this person was more like me and this has revealed that they feel quite different and they may be quite different than I am. And there's maybe even a sense of like, though this isn't rational, a sense that your, your, your trust has been betrayed with this person mm -hmm. or group of people that you're really, really close with. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think it is. And I think, you know, beyond how it happens in churches, I think the exact same thing is happening in our larger politics. Like when we don't understand um, the way that someone is coming to their decisions, like that's frightening. When something is unintelligible, that that's frightening. Um, you know, if, if you, this is why we, we like in, in, in politics, in foreign policy, people talk about like, oh, well, this, this leader is a madman, like, because it's the only, like, you know, if we, if we really don't understand their rationale for what they're doing, and very rarely are they actually like suffering from mental illness, like there's a rationale, we just don't understand it. And we, so we find it frightening. And that's where we come out with this madman language. Um, and I, I think that that inability to understand one another, like it, it really does foment distrust and fear and anger, like confusion is so disorienting. And is, when you're layering that on top of like already big, difficult topics, like it, it's just going to make everything so much worse. Yeah, certainly. Could you talk about maybe a couple other examples, whether you cite them in the book or there are other ones that come to mind? Maybe they're 
maybe they're outside of inner circle church, you know, theology mm-hmm. or human sexuality debates that yeah. many of us are already familiar with. Um, can you share a few more that really over the last few years feel like they've been intensified or maybe magnified to mm-hmm. you in a way that you didn't um, necessarily have an awareness of, say, even five, six years ago? Yeah. So, um, also one of the, one of the other stories I tell in the book is a friend of mine. Um, I I was like scrolling through Instagram one day and she'd shared this post. Um, and it was about like helping children, uh, who are caught up in human trafficking. And at first I was like, Oh yeah, good. You know, like, um, she runs a small business and like sells some things that like support, uh, charities that work with that. And so like, I was like, yeah, I mean, totally this makes sense for her. That's great. But then as I looked at it, like something felt a little bit off. Um, and it, it, to be clear, it wasn't her post. She'd shared somebody else. And I was like, something seems uh, like strange here. And so I was poking around in it. Um, and I noticed some, that some of the hashtags were QAnon hashtags. Um, and you know, part of the whole thing of QAnon is it's this, this claim that like, our government basically is run by satanic pedophiles and they're trafficking children on an enormous scale. Um, my friend had never heard of QAnon. Like I messaged her and I was like, I was like, Oh no, like she's getting drawn into this out of her like good and well-intentioned attempt to help children. And she had no idea what that was. She had no idea what the hashtags meant. She was just like trying to help kids. Um, and I, I sort of struggled to say like, okay, well, I mean, what what should happen here, right? Like she's using Instagram in a really innocent way. She's not getting into bad stuff. Um, she doesn't write about politics for a living. So and this was a couple of years ago. Why should she know what QAnon is? Like I know about it because that's my job. Like I, I don't actually think it'd be a good thing for her to be online so much that she knew what it was at that point. Um, and yet here she was like, I don't remember the details of the post. I think I s- say it in the book. Um, but like, I don't know, quite virgin to misinformation, but like certainly it was an opening for people to fall into like some pretty crazy and false stuff. Um, and she was spreading that unwittingly and like, re- like it, it was sort of like a huh, like, I don't know, something's wrong here, but I'm not, I wasn't like super sure what to say beyond sort of like confirming that my friend was not getting deep into this. Um, so that was one, one example um, and I can pause there or I can go on to, to another one if, if well, you I think, want to say yeah, something. Yeah, I'd like to, to pick on that one just a little bit because I think yeah. I've, I've seen that quite a bit. And maybe one mm-hmm. of the things that's really difficult and it was difficult as you engaged with your friend on the subject was that perhaps even there was a degree of what you would perceive as to be maybe even true about the sentiment in and of itself. And yet it was a signal that if you felt a degree of agreement, here's a group that you might fit into well. It was a, maybe a, you know, especially when you throw the hashtags in, it was a, it was a tribal marker, you know, similar mm-hmm. to a, you know, a lawn placard that you might put out with like, you know, what I often joke now is like the new like secular creed in this house. Mm-hmm. We believe you talk about that in your book as well, or, or a bumper sticker. It's a, it's a signal to group identity. And I think one of the things that was really difficult to navigate, like you're saying, like, I'm not in the, the political sphere. There's, there's certainly, I have political perspectives. That's not, I'm, that's not primarily my focus. But when I 
talk with people about the ideas uh, that that drive them, the ideas that seem to guide their stories and their sense of meaning. Most people aren't able, like you and I, to dedicate so much of our life to studying this stuff. And so maybe they innocently come across something like that and they go, I had a conversation, a similar conversation with a friend who had posted something on Instagram too as well. And I love this guy, well-intentioned. He would never, you know, he, he'd be the furthest thing from going, yeah, JFK Jr. is still alive and he's going to be the VP in 2024 or whatever, you know, something like that. The sort of stuff that was happening in those circles. And yet, um, and yet maybe there was a degree in which like, the partiality of some kind of truth was an invitation into a group that would say, hey, here's a place of welcome and acceptance, which is deeply appealing to all of us. And then with that welcome and acceptance into the group, here's a whole other laundry list of things that this group believes. And I think maybe that's, I think maybe that's like the bait. I don't know what you think about that. Maybe mm-hmm. that's the bait yeah. that's so appealing is like, we deeply long to be connected to groups. We see something that might give us a sense of here are people that might share some of my values. And, you know, as much as we're connected online, we're deeply lonely people too in these mm-hmm. online spaces. Here's a connection to community. And then you get in and it's like, well, here's the other list of things that we also affirm. And you feel this immense pressure to, even if you wouldn't consciously name it as such, to adhere to the other beliefs of the group to continue to main, maintain group acceptance. Uh, do you think that's like a fair assessment of specifically when we think about like yeah. the QAnon movement or, you know, a conspiracy culture, um, that this is the sort of maybe innocent appeal strategy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. And if you read up on QAnon specifically, like um, both comments from people who are involved and then the comment and then pe- comments from people whose family members get involved this idea of like loneliness and community. Um, and it goes both ways. Like sometimes you'll see people who get involved in QAnon because they're already lonely and like, here's a space to have friends and to, to be someone whose perspective is valued. Um, and then also like sometimes it'll become sort of all consuming and they start alienating what other community out they did out have outside because those people aren't valuing their perspective in the same way as their new QAnon friends do. Um, I think something that a lot of people maybe still don't realize, but which has become apparent to me in the last couple of years, is that the way that these conspiracist, um, the, they're, they're movements now. It's not like we think of conspiracy theories as like the X-Files, like there's one or two guys and they're down in the basement and they have like this complicated theory and they're loners and they're weird. It's not like that anymore. And this is, you know, I don't know that that the internet has made conspiracism more common, but it has hooked people up with one another and it's made it a a communal activity Mm. and that's given it a new strength where like you can have a good time, you can make friends, like people who care about you. And that's really, really powerful. And I think that is a big part of it. Um, But the other thing that I would also say, uh, I came across this, this passage from Dorothy Sayers, a uh, friend of C.S. Lewis, theologian and, and uh, novel writer, uh, while I was working on the book, and I, I included in there, um, and she's writing in 1942, so like in the context of Nazi propaganda, like very aware of, of like serious things, not taking these matters lightly, um, and she talks about 
She says it's, it's as dangerous for people unaccustomed to handling words and unacquainted with their technique to tinkle about, tinker about with these heavily charged nuclei of emotional power as it would be for me to burst into a laboratory and start playing with a powerful electromagnet or other machine highly charged with electrical force. Um, she has, says we have a population that is literate in the sense that everyone is able to read and write, but very few of our people have been taught to understand and handle language as an instrument of power. Um, and I think that that, if you, especially if you read the whole passage, it can be a little off-putting to us as Americans because it's, I mean, it's elitist. It's not democratic. Like she's saying not everybody actually knows how to mm. like deal well in words. Um, it is a, it is, I think it's a skill anyone can learn, but it is a skill to be learned and not a skill that everybody has. Um, but we all deal in words all day long now. Um, and so, you know, she was worried back then about people, you know, just listening to the radio and reading newspapers, having this overexposure to language, um, which is a powerful tool that they weren't trained to handle. And like, how much riskier is that now, especially then when you layer those community incentives on top mm. of it? This is tricky, Bonnie, because I think even the last time we we talked, you know, some of the some of the pushback and even even not from people that I think were like, you know, anonymous trolls online mm -hmm. was that, you know, you and I, we both have advanced degrees from the same institution. You know, we have white collar sort of work. Uh, wouldn't mm -hmm. we, because of the social incentives in our own in-groups, have this sort of, you know, these elitist incentives which are blinding us you know to the the real truth that's going on behind the scenes um don't we have a vested interest even if we're not you know getting uh, george soros directly cutting us a check <laughs> don't we don't we have you know our own social incentives in our own groups that might be blinding us from um from the truth uh when we talk about in, you have a chapter on conspiracism uh, mm -hmm. And you address in that chapter maybe even some of, you know, the reasons why you see it flourishing and had the ability to flourish in many evangelical contexts. Can we like define that term? Because I, I do think mm -hmm. there are people that hear that and they go, well, what you're saying and anybody that talks about dismissingly about conspiracies are people that are wanting to like maintain the status quo. There are people that have a vested interest in lies continuing to happen. And certainly like Bonnie, I, I'm not, you know, I've got, I, I certainly have my own suspicions of people in power. And I, I do think that's maybe even mm -hmm. part of a historic Christian theology is to, to, to be people that honestly are a bit suspicious of ulterior motives, knowing that we have this bent towards selfishness. And yet, how do you define conspiracism in a way that acknowledges like, you know, there's certain things that we've been told by people in power that we just long later, or maybe even in the moment people have been able to say, um, you know, isn't true, whether it's pretenses for the Vietnam war or the Iraq war, you know, how do we do this? How do we talk about what you refer to as like conspiracism, can you define that and maybe help people yeah. not see this as like class warfare, right? Like, of course, mm -hmm. you guys think yeah. that is you're middle class and upper middle class, and you mm -hmm. you're you're part of that that group. 
Yeah. Well, so I would say a few things. One is, and I say this in the chapter on conspiracism, um, so I'm a libertarian. You can find this out pretty quickly if you Google me. Um, it is not hard for me to be suspicious of the government. Like, I've, I've written probably hundreds of thousands of words on, like, the way the government lies to us and manipulates us and is bad and should radically change. So, like, I, uh, whatever <laughs> critiques can be made of me, like the idea that I'm super down with the status quo and want things to stay as they are, that is not one of them. Um, like if I were a dictator for a day, it would be like maybe more dramatic changes than, you know, your, your average QAnon person wants to make. Right. Um, and conspiracies, you know, do happen. I mean, this is one of the other things that I talk about. And I think particularly for like people who came of age in the seventies when like a lot of this stuff, like MK ultra, when I first heard about MK ultra, I was like, Oh, that's, that's fake. And no, it's real. It's completely real. Like, and it was exposed like by a congressional committee, like a lot of stuff came out in the 1970s. And so I super understand being primed to see conspiracy, like to, to buy into conspiracy theories and see conspiracies. If that's like what was happening as you reached adulthood, like those formative experiences, um, because this stuff does happen. Where I would distinguish, like, what I'm talking about is conspiracism specifically, um, and I'm going to read this just to make sure that I'm phrasing it right. So it's not a specific theory, and in fact, often there's not much theory to it at all. It's more an accusatory, credulous, and often fearful mindset that treats rumor as research and innuendo as proof. Mm, that's good. Um, so it's, it's not like the guy in the basement who has these classified government documents and he's got like hard proof here is what they did, right? Like those guys sometimes do find stuff. Um, it's mucking around on Twitter more. Well, not Twitter so much anymore. Telegram, Gab, one of the Facebook groups, um, talking about how you're convinced that, I don't know, Mike Pence was already privately executed in a military tribunal by Donald Trump for his treason. Like, you don't have it. You don't have proof of that. You don't have a classified document that you somehow stole or, or, or had leaked to you or whatever. Um, it's just a mindset that is just suspicious, but also very credulous. Like, it, it's very willing to believe certain things um, while also being, like, extremely... Uh, cynical about other things. And so it, it really doesn't come down to, um, I have a, a fixed theory of who did what bad thing and here's the proof. It's just, those are bad people. And if you're going to tell me a, a story that paints them in a negative light, I'm going to believe it because it fits my priors. Um, and so I think that's an important distinction to make. I mean, you know, if someone wants to, to come out with like hard proof that Mike Pence is dead, like, let's look at that, I guess. But that's not what's happening. Hmm. So I think that that's really helpful. If I can rephrase maybe what you're saying, it seems like what would be a, a dividing line between just like status quo maintenance, uh, maybe even an openness to um, explore different avenues of um, assessing patterns that we see and being able to come up to, with rational conclusions based on the evidence that goes, well, what we've been told in this instance isn't actually true. And also simultaneously 
to be able to allow perhaps uh, something that we once believed maybe was a conspiracy or we, we, we had a belief and we explore the evidence and the evidence actually runs contrary to our beliefs and yet we accept it even knowing that it runs contrary to our vested interests. That would be very different mm-hmm. than what you're talking about is someone that has like a mode of operation that always seeks the conspiracy. And I think there's, there's, you know, there's, there's stuff here too, where like, you know, we need, we need healthy insights in, even into our own predispositions and makeups, because I, I find in conversations with people about this sort of stuff. And, and, and this is something that is, you know, problematic in church communities in general, that, People that have a propensity towards anxiety um, that may need, and there's nothing wrong if you have like an anxiety disorder, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to demonize that, but to have an awareness that if you have a propensity towards anxiety, you are already maybe predisposed to be deeply suspicious about the potential for people hurting you, dare even on the verge of paranoia about it. And if that's the case, um, an awareness of that might help you be aware that you have this inclination towards that. That's not to say that um, you're always going to be right or wrong. It's just to say, like, I confess I have this, and maybe that's maybe a way that we can deal with some of our confirmation bias, because that seems to be the thing that happens, is once you buy into, like, the conspiracy culture mindset, everything has to fit, no matter no matter if the equations don't actually work out, the solution has to fit the narrative. It's very much ideological versus maybe what you're talking about, which is like, man, I feel like I've humbly assessed the evidence. I step back and I go, yeah, MK Ultra really did happen. <laughs> you know, that was, there's enough evidence <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. And yet maybe at times. The, you know, the name alone was so wild. Right. I was like, there's no way. They didn't, they didn't con- call it I'll that. One they did. For my own journey, uh, Bonnie, it was, um, you know, I had, probably in the mid 2000s, the the only time I really was politically active at all was um, in the mid 2000s with with Ron Paul. So there's a a libertarian name for you. And at the time, I interned on Ron Paul's 2008 campaign. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So at the time, (laughs) I was very much, um, I'd very much bought like the end the Fed stuff. Not, I, I would say personally, I'm not wild about the way the Federal Reserve is run now. But I think one of the things I came to realize about myself was that um, there was no amount of evidence after I initially accepted the line of argumentation that the Fed was inherently corrupt, that the Fed was run by malevolent Satanists. <laughs> there was nothing that could really convince me otherwise until I think one day I got to the point, and it didn't take me that long, maybe a couple of years or a solid year of being into it. And I started to realize every single one of these guys that are really selling me and ending the Fed also have a vested interest in gold. They're also selling me like, you know, please buy gold or silver from my yeah. company. So yeah. if the Fed did end, what's going to happen? Gold is going to skyrocket. And I think what happened in my own life was I applied my like suspicions to myself. And I applied my suspicions even to my in-group to go like, is there a vested interest even in my own in-group for this narrative? Mm-hmm. And once I saw that, it, I think it 
it wasn't like, um, you know, I never had any attraction to like any sort of conspiracy again. And maybe people are going to be upset that I'm even naming that one as a, as a conspiracy, but, uh, it was eye opening to me to realize, no, like if I'm really going to be serious about questioning whether or not people have selfish ulterior motives, I should sort of like equally apply that, especially to the, maybe the ones Mm -hmm. who go, you know, does Alex Jones have a vested interest in selling that people have vested interests? And yeah, he does. Right? Yeah, the guy who sells the prepper kits is the one who's constantly been spent 20 years forecasting societal right, collapse, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I mean, I would say two two things, like, on, on the subject of conspiracism further. One is, you know, we're all subject to, like not wanting to question our own in-group. And so, like, sincerely, if you have someone who you think is, like, crazy getting into conspiracy theory stuff and, like, just off the deep end, and they no doubt think the same thing about you, um, like, if you are are really serious about engaging with them on this stuff, and I think, you know, a lot of times it's better to, to not engage it head-on because a lot of times that's just going to make things worse. But if, if you guys are really, like, we want to talk about this stuff... Um, you know, inviting them to to point out what they think are your blind spots and like hearing that in good faith and like seriously considering it has to be part of it. Um, and, you know, maybe nine times out of 10, they're wrong, but maybe that one time they're not. And it's like important to hear that. Um, but the other thing that I would say about conspiracism generally is I think it just gives people way too much credit. Like the the vast majority of time, it's like, oh, this had to be planned. Like, it couldn't have just happened. I don't think people are this um, competent. No, people people are really that stupid. People are yeah. really that evil and selfish. Like, the guy who is selling you prepper kits, like, really is just hyping up societal collapse because he's going to make money off of it. Like, that government agency really is that incompetent. That politician really is that corrupt. Like, the, this, there's, like, so much bad evil stuff that happens right out in the open like a lot of my mentality about this is let's deal with that stuff stuff we can all see and agree is there and once that's fixed sure yeah we can turn to your invisible things that you think are there and maybe they're they will be there and we can fix those too but like there's plenty of stuff just out in the open just that goes completely unaddressed um, that we could focus on first. I want to spend some time because I don't, I don't want to get too hung up on the specific point of conspiracy culture, even though it is symptomatic mm-hmm. of something that I think in your book you are addressing. There's even underneath that, if we did, took, take a crowbar and pry underneath that, there might be even some deeper layers that we need to address, we need to work on in Christian community, but also in the broader broader culture. You talked about like even the oversaturation of access to information that lead many people into thinking that they perhaps have a degree of expertise on a subject that, um, you know, maybe again, this is really difficult because it's going to sound like elitist language, but unless you've actually really been around people that are genuine experts in their field, um, you have no idea the amount of time and energy 
that goes into it. So for example, when I, you know, maybe I do a, a podcast that, that brings up a, a perspective of a biblical scholar, you know, I get this oftentimes when I talk about like John Walton, for example, and he's done like the lost world series talking about Genesis and, and, and maybe he's got some perspectives that run contrary to those that would have grown up in like young earth creationist circles. And it's very common that I get people that go, well, this guy's just a hack and he doesn't know what he's talking about. And I go, Oh, well, like, again, gosh, I know it sounds elitist, but it's so hard to help people realize, like, just because you have Google and Wikipedia doesn't mean like, he he speaks ancient and writes in ancient Hebrew. Do you? Can can you read, you know, um, you know, ancient Near Eastern texts in their original language? Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't mean that he's right. But it seems like you've you're also addressing in this book that what do we do with like our deep suspicion about expertise or maybe over and inf- over inflated egos about our own level of expertise on the subject? How do we handle this sort of maybe class divide on what, mm-hmm. what is expertise? What makes yeah. someone a genuine expert? Um, seems like we have a real distrust issue. Sometimes it seems to be well, well put distrust, but like how would we even challenge mm-hmm. an expert? Yeah, it's really tough. And I think it's especially really tough right now, having just come out of like the the intense phase of the pandemic, right? Where you had so much, um, so many experts who uh, we like, we had people openly saying like, yeah, I, I, I lied about that. Um, like the, the one example that, that is really egregious that stands out to me was, um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, like high-ranking government official, said to the New York Times, um, at first I said we'd need to do like 60-70% uh, immunity to get herd immunity. And then I saw how many people were getting their shots, and so I said, I can bump this up. I can put it at like 80-90%. They're ready for it. And it's like, you can't just come out. First of all, you shouldn't have lied in the first place and, and given a false estimate and pretended like it was real. But you can't just like, and then to come out and say like, I just lied about this because I, uh, you know, I thought people could could handle it. Uh, I mean, how, how do you defend expertise after something like that? Um, it's incredibly difficult. It makes it incredibly difficult when, when we have such public examples of, of expert deception and poor behavior of all sorts. Um, the problem is, though, that just because the experts did something wrong or just because they got something wrong, and those are you know sometimes the same, sometimes not, does not make the non-expert uninformed opinion any better. Mm-hmm. Um, and like him being a liar doesn't make some other rando on the internet correct like those things they can both be wrong um and often they are both wrong and so you know we have we're in this difficult position it's hard to trust expertise um but also we need it like every we can't live in the world that we have without trusting expertise every day like every time you you drive on a bridge you're trusting expertise from somebody you'll never meet and so i think part of of making this not be as you said like a class issue is remembering that expertise is not just about like government and and politics and science and theology like there are lots of other kinds of expertise like more practical expertise that that makes it possible for us to live like normal comfortable lives 
Um, like the existence of my washing machine is the result of expertise and like that probably does way more for me every day than yeah, <laughs> and that you could YouTube um, if your washing machine goes yeah. awry that you could YouTube and maybe find a video or two that shows you, well, this might be the simple fix doesn't make you an expertise in washing machines. No, it doesn't. Like plumbers are experts. Like uh, almost all of us have expertise in something. It does just because it doesn't, it doesn't like come from an advanced degree. doesn't mean that it's not expertise and doesn't mean that it's not like knowledge and, and expertise. And, and I would add authority in that subject that you have that other people don't. And so I think that's remembering that is important to helping us like not make this a class thing where like people with PhDs and advanced degrees are not the only experts. Um, so that's part of it. Um, and, and often I think we, the, the reason why perhaps one reason why it's easier to be dismissive of more like academic expertise is you can dismiss, say some biblical scholar, uh, unfairly and nothing happens. If I dismiss the expertise of my plumber, like my house is ruined, like the consequences catch up with you a lot more quickly with, with some types of expertise than with others. Um, and I think that's part of why we are uh, all able to sort of like play political hobbyist and theological hobbyist where we, we all sort of like set ourselves up as, as experts because, you know, nothing really bad happens in the like quickly. We don't perceive any any consequence. Of course, there are consequences. Right. But it's not like something I have to pay thousands of dollars mm. to fix. So what would make for in your mind like obviously we have different tracks and different domains of expertise, which all have their own maybe path for vetting, um, vetting you and a, a progression from novice or apprentice to intermediate level to expertise level. And each one of these disciplines, we might not fully understand. Um, is there some sort of like maybe broad overarching, um, pathway that you could point to and go, Hey, this is really what it would look like to be able to claim yourself as an expert. Um, what does expertise look like? I certainly know what it looks like in like academia, for example, I know a little mm -hmm. bit of what it looks like to be, you know, we have, you might have a friend that's an electrician or a plumber. Um, but what would you say? Are, are there some, maybe core criteria or, or some sort of evaluation for determining whether or not someone is like a genuine expert in their field, which doesn't mean again, that it's like everything they say is gospel truth. But if they, um, if at least we understand the process by which they came to be an expert in their field and experts can still think, get things wrong, that might help us have a little bit of humility as to, well, if we we're going to bring, bring some sort of correction, we should probably have either ourselves or someone else that can travel down a similar path. They can become an expert. Then they have at least maybe a degree of, we've got two people that are using similar practices that are coming to different conclusions. So is there anything that you might be able to say about like, well, what, what is criteria for, you know, for expertise in something that could help someone understand? It's not just like you watched a YouTube video or listened to a podcast. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to say it's not necessarily like formal training, right? Though sometimes it is. Um, it's not necessarily a degree. It's not necessarily having, uh, you know, worked and been paid for doing that. Um, I do think frequently there is, uh, 
an element of like peer recognition, right? Like that other people in your field should have, or, 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 you know, it may not be a field, but like that other people who, who have knowledge of it should be able to look at that person and say like, yeah, this is, is probably the roughly the right thing. Um, so that's, that's part of it. Uh, this is a vetting that happens there, right? I I mean, there's yeah, there's a vetting like of other people who know, um, and, and, you know, I think in, in more academic fields, this is going to often look like, well, you know, I disagree with so-and-so, right. But he knows what he's talking about or something like that. Um, depending on, on the, the field, there's going to be those, those very practical, um, test cases, I guess, uh, of, of where like if you you do something and you do it badly there's going to be a, it's going to become pretty clear who's not an expert um in the in my book i cite another book um called the death of expertise by a guy named tom nichols he defines it as an intangible but recognizable combination of education talent experience and peer affirmation mm-hmm. um which i think is a pretty good working definition it's not of course, a very specific definition. And so like, you know, depending on the type of expert we're talking about, that's going to be really tricky um, to, to, there's going to, reasonable people are sometimes going to be able to disagree. Um, but I also think there's an element of like comportment, especially when you get things wrong. And so, you know, it's not coming out and saying like, yeah, I lied about it. You know, I thought that was the thing to do. It's like, no, like I, I apologize. Like I lied about it. Um, and, you know, I think in extreme cases, that's going to look like stepping out of positions of authority, right? Um, that's something that uh, it's difficult, like seeing experts get things wrong. I think we see them get it wrong in real time a lot more now. Experts were never like infallible. We just didn't, we saw more of the final product and less of sort of the process and like the intra-industry disputes that we now see just like playing out online. Um, and also, you know, there's just a lot more opportunity for, um, experts to say, speak to the media. And just because you have good skills in one area does not mean you should be out talking to the media. Like those are different skill sets and someone who may be very competent, may be a poor speaker, may, um, misspeak and not know how to correct themselves. Like, and so I think we, we see a lot more expert failure and what we have not caught up with yet, perhaps, is um, people who are in positions of, of as experts being good at and, and being able to like effectively go out and apologize and like explain what they got wrong and explain how things are going to be different going forward. And so it just leads to people writing them off, um, even if that that underlying subject matter is actually like subject matter knowledge is actually solid. That's a great useful. point, Bonnie. I mean, and it has multiple areas of application. To be an expert in a specific domain does not mean that expertise transfers over to other domains. And so it might be the instance where, mm-hmm. and we've maybe all of us at some point, if you've gone to university or graduate school, you had a professor that you knew was an expert in their field, but that actually doesn't mean that they're good at so teaching, boring. which yeah. is a different yeah. skill set. And, um, they might be great mm-hmm. at research. They might be great at writing. Um, but they might not like the actual skill set of teaching is something that they haven't, uh, gone through a process of mastery on. And the same might be for communication, you know, uh, an expert you might take, especially for you know the sciences, for example, they, you know, you're going to be front loaded in your science courses with 
you know, math and science, but not communication. You know, you're not taking a bunch of communication mm-hmm. classes. Just like I didn't take, I took one math class in undergrad. That was it. You know, math is not an area of expertise mm-hmm. for me by any stretch of the imagination. So though I might be competent or maybe even close to being an expert in a field or two um, to then put me in a position where I, I, I should speak about math, you know, that's that's difficult. So I think you take someone like a Fauci, for example, and, you know, I he shouldn't be right. on television. Or at the very least, um, if <laughs> yeah. we have, which very much likely could be the case in our lifetime, another pandemic again. One of the real head scratchers to me mm-hmm. was why we, you know, essentially had like a czar for this instead of a panel mm-hmm. of experts who maybe would have sure. equal qualifications, different, different abilities yeah. to communicate different perspectives, maybe mm-hmm. even, you know, that we could see that these experts might have slightly difference of opinion and they could show us how they could reach some sort of consensus mm-hmm. together. The other area that I've noticed, Bonnie, mm-hmm. is um, people might be an expert in a specific domain that gains respectability um, with a group of people. And then that person, and this is pretty common, I think, in academia, you know, Somebody is an expert in a specific field, but they really love talking about all of these other areas and people attribute their expertise in that one domain with being expertise in others everywhere. everywhere and we saw yeah. that with different people that were like, well, I'm a pediatrician, so I think I, you know, I, I can speak out about epidemiology or you might see it. I mean, I, I, I frequently, cause there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that also, you know, might listen to like a Jordan Peterson, for example. And there, there are many great things that I, I learned from, from Jordan Peterson about, you know, behavioral science, but oftentimes he will talk about religion and people will take that as um, mm. expertise with no mm-hmm. idea how far away he is on a particular mm-hmm. subject from anywhere near what like even undergraduate level Bible courses would help you understand about the scriptures. Yeah. And so people will run with that because they've heard from an expert. And I just think it's, it's very, very mm-hmm. challenging. Um, you know, I think about, uh, you know, there's this idea in platonic thought that matter in order for matter to be given some sort of purpose to be given a teleological purpose, a purposeful end, it had to be informed, right? It had to be given a formation to be sent towards a goal. And I think about these channels by which we are over, we are informed, but we have an over access to information. And one of those most influential means of receiving information, which is for better or worse, shaping us towards particular ends in our particular culture is media. Um, you know, we don't have like mm-hmm. a local town herald running around here. ye, here ye. here's the news for the local town. We've got, you know, those old legacy media, like, you know, CNN and Fox news. And then we've got like the new media of social media and YouTube and Reddit. Um, but it seems to be that depending on your ideological or political tribal location, that we have this deep, deep distrust of these institutions in media Tell me a little bit. You have a whole chapter dedicated to media specifically. What is going on there? And, and you know, it seems like there's a group that would be like, I distrust legacy media or particular, you know, legacy media. If I am person on the political right, I have a deep distrust for anything that comes from CNN. If I'm a person on the left, I have a deep distrust for Fox News. If I'm under, you know, 35, I have a deep distrust for all of it. 
but I am more than fine listening to like Joe Rogan. Um, what is going on with our distrust of media and the saturation of information? How in the world are we supposed to sift through all of this and not feel like like everything is fake news? It's over um, to steal a line from from my friend cognitive, the cognitive scientist John Verveke. It's like combinatorially explosive. There's so much information. We can't sift through it all. We have to pick what we like and we don't like. And frankly, it mm-hmm. is just it's it's just overwhelming. What has changed in our relationship to the media? What has maybe even changed in media that's making it so hard to be informed in a way that that formation is leading towards some sort of good? Yeah. Um, well, that's a huge question. Uh, I So let's start with like the media itself. Um, so when polling on this shows that um, when you ask Americans like what's wrong with the media, the answer overwhelmingly is they are lying on purpose for politics. Um, and so like um, Americans are like, we're, we're overwhelmingly conspiracy theorists about this. Like we, we really think that it's, it's about politics. It's deliberate. Um, they're trying to deceive you. Um, what I would say having been in, you know, some newsrooms, uh, is that is not the situation. Um, the media definitely gets things wrong. You can definitely find people who do lie on purpose. You can definitely find examples of people who the the reason they're lying is politics. Um, But by and large, I do not think that is like the the chief problem. And that's not to say that the the media industry is in stellar shape. But I I do not think that the vast majority of journalists are out there like lying to you to try to, um, in the most common telling of this story, help Democrats win. Um, In fact, in in my experience, uh, I spent... Uh, almost eight years at The Week, um, which is a, a smallish um, but mainstream media outlet where uh, the vast majority of the staff was like centered left to far left. And, you know, we would have staff meetings that would be very explicitly like, here's where we need to be on the lookout for our bias. Like, we're going to get clicks if we write things about Trump. Do not write things about Trump just because you're going to get clicks. Um do not refer to him just as Trump. You need to talk about him like you would any other president, like call him President Trump on first mention, just like you would with President Obama. Um, so, you know, again, not to say that, that these things never happen, but I don't think it's the main issue. The things that I would point to are a little bit um, more mundane. Um, so one is that before like Craigslist and um, now Facebook Marketplace and, and Google and Facebook ads, Media was the game in town for advertising, and it made a lot of money, and now it doesn't. Um, and so, they're tr- you know, the media is trying to get uh, money from a, a smaller pot of available ad money. Um, it's harder to get. It pays much less per view. Um, and so there's this very strong incentive to write things that will get clicks because that's how you make money. It's how you pay the bills. Um, nobody wants to pay for a subscription. Everybody wants to hop the paywall. Everybody wants to put on ad blockers. And so, you know, there's this expectation that this all be served up for free. And then people wonder, like, why is it mm-hmm. sensationalist? Why, why is it low quality? Well, y- you don't want to pay. And the ads don't pay very well, so the game is high volume. Um, should it be that way? No, but like that's the market reality. And this is something that I, I find shocking. Like people on the right who are all about markets don't seem to understand. Like 
the market incentives are very bad. If you don't want the market to operate this way, you need so to So you're saying pay. like the um, impact of that is that inf more inflammatory stuff, which triggers in us that, that, you know, the, the animal brain, the fight or flight, that, that mechanism, it seems like that is the thing that we continually come back to more so than like good news or what we'd experience as positive news. So the inflammatory stuff gets more clicks, but are you also suggesting that because of these market forces, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but are you also suggesting that because of the market forces, because there's less money involved, is there less incentive for like quality journalists like yourself? Are there, are there people that would be um, turned away from these fields because they feel like they couldn't actually do what seemed to be were like, here's traditional journalistic values. If you have a source, you can't just go, well, uh, an unnamed source. I mean, there was, there was a time it seemed like long ago. I remember learning about this in historiography classes in undergrad was like, well, you know, you have a source unless it's like, you know, they're they're under, they could be under some sort of like violent retribution. Mm -hmm. Like you have to kind of name your sources, right? Are you saying that maybe even the market mm -hmm. forces are turning away like quality journalists too? Is that a possibility? Um. So yeah, I I, I do think that that is that is part of it because another another like you know, unnamed sources are going to be willing to say more exciting things. They don't have to put their names on it. Um, you see this especially, I think, in what's called access journalism, which is, um, you know, a source close to the president told me, um, people who don't have to put their names on things are going to, like, share the office rumors in a way that someone who does have to be named doesn't. And that's going to make for a ex more exciting story, and it's going to get more clicks. And so, like, should journalists write that story? with a source who won't go on the record? No, probably not. I don't yeah, think how so. How could you ever verify um, you know, or falsify it? some circumstances where it's appropriate. Yeah, there are some circumstances where it's appropriate to use an unnamed source, but I do think they're overused. But I mean, like this is what the market is encouraging right now. Um, it's also encouraging speed. Like the, the more stories you have, the more money you can make. And so like there's this strong incentive to be churning things out. Um, it also, I think, because it's encouraging speed, discourages specialization. So it's harder to get a beat where you develop that subject matter knowledge and that expertise. Um, and, you know, people just don't know what they don't know. Um, one of the examples that I, I share in the book and that I like to point to was after the Cathedral of Notre Dame burned, there was an article um, that was headlined uh it was Notre Dame. Hang on, I got to. I remember that one. It's like something about so it being good. the mecca of tourists. Um, tourist mecca, yeah. <laughs> tourist mecca in Notre Dame, also revered as place of worship. Um, <laughs> just like wrong religion. Tourism didn't exist as we know it when they built this. It was a place of worship first. Um, so, and like in that case, you know, I think that I don't actually think that the, the writers were at fault because they were like religion reporters. Um, probably some like early career editor working on tight deadlines, slaps this headline up there, doesn't know perhaps like why it was a laughing stock. Um, that's not malice. That's not like someone trying to discount the importance of this historic cathedral. It's just ignorance. Like journalists have ignorance just like everyone else. And when they're under this insane pressure to like churn out content, 
that's going to become more liability than it would be if they could take time and, you know, do work more slowly and more deliberately, more carefully. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't want to, the, the fault is not all on the side of news consumers. It's not all on the side of journalists. Um, it's a, it's a bad feedback loop. And what we saw in the aftermath of in the past few years, like post 2016, when like suddenly everyone had to have politics glued to their eyes at all times was that people reported trusting the media less and consuming more media. That's so, so weird. <laughs> like what is, what is We're that signal to journalists? It's like, keep what you're doing is bad. Please keep doing it. Um, it just, it's a, it's a bad situation where there are still plenty of journalists who are like trying to do honest, factual work. Um, they're not like, again, I don't think that deliberate lies for politics is the problem in the vast majority of cases. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's a bad, it's bad. There's feedback not, from not both enough sides incentives the for it, bad. right? I mean, there doesn't seem to be enough incentives yeah. for someone to do the good slow work when they're, the demands are, we need the fast stuff that generates the most clicks because we are so needy for ad revenue. The only way we get it. Yeah. Well, and it's, and it's incredibly complicated, right? Because like, if you jump back to say the pre-internet age, like I wouldn't have a career in media. I lived in Minnesota, not New York city. Like I wouldn't have been able to do like the online research that I can do. I wouldn't have been able to be in touch with editors from far away. So like there are good things that the internet has brought to media, like in terms of making it possible to bring in voices that were not there before. Um, but there are also a lot of bad things. And I think, uh, on the, the consumer side of things, like two really big things that anyone can do. And, and this is, you know, not novel advice, but like number one, like pay for good journalism. If, if you want journalism to be better, pay for good journalism and then use the fact that you've paid for it to like actually force yourself to read that instead of other stuff, right? Like use your own investment in it to, to train yourself to have better habits um, but two is also just like consume a lot less, um, like politics doesn't have to be everyone's hobby. Um, and in fact, like we have a system of government that was by design supposed to be where you delegate your attention to politics to a handful of people who do it full time and you go do other stuff and don't have to think about it. Um, now are they doing a good job? No, but they're not going to do a good job whether you're reading the news every morning or not. Like that, there's no connection between those behaviors. Um, and so like for a lot of people, I think the answer is stop thinking about it, ignore it. It's not helping you. Um, and like, you should still read my stuff obviously, but, but no, but like, seriously, like most people could stand to, to consume a lot less. Um, and when they do consume, generally speaking, pay for what you want to see more of. Um, every time you click on some trash link on Twitter or Facebook, that tells them, do this. Mm, this is what that's people good. want. That's some good practical advice. And I, I think one of the things I commonly encourage people is to consider, consider the domains that maybe God has given you that you can actually influence. And that doesn't mean you, you want to be naive, uh, ill-informed about the things that are going on in the world that you shouldn't care. But realistically, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And while you give yeah. all of that mental energy and attention to the 
to the thing that's running the headlines on CNN, you have a neighborhood, you have your workplace, you have a family, you hopefully have a church community, mm-hmm. you have people right in front of you, you have things that you might be gifted in or called in that can actually make like real tangible difference people's lives way more so yeah. than the anxiety and, and worry that we dedicate to the headlines. Yeah. And if you are going to be interested in politics and like, you know, I interested in politics. Um, we talked about like the problem with experts straining outside their expertise. And I think that that's like a, a broader lesson that is relevant to all of us here, which is I would say deliberately choose on the high end, maybe like half a dozen like big topics or stories that you're going to follow and like actually develop some expertise on those subjects so that when you're reading an article or watching a news report on that subject, if they get something wrong, you're going to know. And not because you're just sort of like suspicious, but because you have concrete knowledge of like, oh, here's specifically the factual error that they made. Um, Like if you try to follow everything, you're going to do it all badly. Um, And it, it's, I mean, you're not going to change anything. You're not going to fix anything. Um, if you, if you narrow things down, you will probably spend less time on it, have more time to spend on like more concrete things that you can do. But also when you are consuming media on those subjects, like you have the expertise to be able to do so at a much better level. Um, and I think it's sort of like cultivating a taste, right? As you become more informed on that subject, you're going to naturally gravitate towards higher quality materials. The thing underneath the thing that we have yet to address, and we, we have addressed at it and maybe um, not not directly, is you, th- you propose in your book that the really the ultimate challenge that you, you believe we're facing right now is really a challenge about epistemology. We don't know how to know things. Um, we don't know the processes. Mm-hmm. Maybe we don't even know if we can know things. We are so overwhelmed. We don't know how to know. Um, what are you What are you offering as you identify that problem? Why would you say that's the core problem? And what are some actual movements towards improvement, towards building a plan that could actually provide, you know, maybe specifically as we think about primary audience, which are people that are inhabiting some sort of Christian community. There's certainly those that are, are listening that are not in, in Christian community that are, that are curious about Christian theology. But what would you say are practical mm-hmm. steps, Some maybe some redirecting of poor practices? Um, maybe there's a better theological or philosophical mm-hmm. understanding of truth that we need to address here. Tell us a little bit more about like why you think the core issue here is an issue of knowledge. Yeah. So epistemology is like a subset of philosophy. Um, and I think general perception is like, that's really esoteric. Like that's not something ordinary people need to be like thinking about. And the way that it works in academic philosophy right now, I'd say that's true. Like it gets into like these very arcane and complicated, like little word problems and, and how do you know what knowledge is and, it's probably not going to be useful to most people. But historically, epistemology for centuries was significantly about like developing intellectual virtues and becoming the sort of person who 
like has a feel for truth, the way that you can feel the difference between cotton and polyester, like becoming the sort of person who can recognize that. Um, and that I think is something that we all can do and something that, again, you know, you can address a lot of this by just logging off. Um, but if we're going to be involved in this information environment that we have, and I think the, the, the extent to which we can log off is pretty limited um, at this point, we have a responsibility to like be to be cultivating those those virtues and to be what I talk in the book is like virtues do not you can't just decide to be virtuous any more than you can decide to like a food like I can't wake up and be like all right I like beer now right like you gotta it's it's not easy to like when you first try beer most people don't like it when they first try it um, it's about cultivating tastes. Um, and the way that you do that, like with food or with drinks or with other things, is significantly about habits, like doing things over and over again that make it possible for that taste to develop, or in this case, make it possible for you to have that virtue um, and have that feel for truth. And so um, the three virtues that I talk about um, are, and this comes from a, a book for people who want to read more on that is from a, a Wheaton College philosopher named W.J. Wood, and the book is called Epistemology, Becoming Intellectually Virtuous. Um, and so the three that he talks about and that I talk about as well are uh, studiousness and intellectual honesty and wisdom. Um, and they go in that order. Studiousness is very much about like the, the process of acquiring knowledge and how you are behaving like in the process of study. And of course, it doesn't have to be formal study, um, but, but we are all studying things all the time. Um, whatever it is that we're interested in, falling down a Wikipedia rabbit hole at 1130 at night when you should be asleep is a, a type of studying. Um, and then intellectual honesty is about uh, how you're receiving the information that you're finding, right? Um, and this, I think, gets back to what we were talking about with conspiracism, where when you're finding things that you you don't like and you don't want to be true, like, are you going to dismiss them or are you going to say, like, wow, it, it, you know, it looks like this thing that I don't want to be true is true and doesn't fit with what I thought and maybe I have to change some of my thinking now. And then wisdom is about putting the knowledge that you've gained, perhaps unwillingly, uh, if it wasn't what you wanted it to be, putting that to good use um, and, and, and using that knowledge and love. Um, and so that's a big part of it. But again, like you, you can't just decide I, I'm, I have wisdom now. I'm wise. Um, you have to it's, it has to be supported by habits. And so uh, a big part of um, one, one of the, the second to the last chapter of, of my book is about like sort of inventorying our own behavior and asking ourselves questions about like, what are our habits and, and how are we using our attention right now? Um, and this should be like, hopefully pretty specific. Like, can you wash the dishes without listening to a podcast? You're like, convicted can Bonnie. you <laughs> fold laundry without watching television? Um, and I it's mean, me though. too. Like, like, uh, like for me, I, I think I'm, pretty good about like I'm not out there arguing on social media but like the very weeks when I'm like tiredest and short on time like all of a sudden I just find hours in the day to scroll through Twitter I'm not arguing people like no one could tell from the outside because I'm not posting I'm just scrolling um but like that's that's not a good habit um and so yeah you can go through my list and get a good sense probably of, of questions get a good sense of probably my own feelings um but 
but yeah, so like inventorying that and then like actually changing those habits and making space for those virtues to develop and to be supported. Um, and the, this is something, a lot of it is stuff you have to do individually, um, just by nature of how things are, like you choose whether your cell phone is your first, the first thing that you read in the morning, right? But a lot of it is stuff that can happen um, in community or with the support of community. And as we were talking about earlier, like, I think ideally in some cases with people who we think are really wrong about this stuff and they think we're really wrong about this stuff. Um, there's a, a story that I tell in the last chapter. It's about um, Benjamin Franklin. Um, there's a phenomenon that psychologists call the Ben Franklin effect. And so he was in the, this is, I feel like there's a lot of apocryphal Ben Franklin stories. This is a true one that he wrote about himself. Um, so he's in like the Pennsylvania state legislature and he's trying to get some like, I don't know, clerk of the legislature position or something, something in the, the legislature. And this new lawmaker opposes him for the, the role and he gets it anyway, but he's like, dang, this guy is like going to be a big deal. I don't like that. He doesn't like me. He's clearly against me. And so what he did was he found out that this guy had a book that he wanted to read. So he sends a note to him and is like, hey, I heard you got this great book. Could I please borrow it? And the guy sends it over and he reads the book and he returns it. And then the next time he sees them, sees this guy, um, they're just like friends. Because and the, the theory is essentially that when you ask someone to help you, it inclines them to you. And there's a lot of different reasons that can be. Like it's flattering to be asked for help. Um, you feel a sense of investment in that person and their welfare after you've helped them. And so, um, like we've t repeatedly touched, and I think for good reason on the subject of elitism, like we, we can't actually be like swooping into other people's lives and be like, I'm going to fix your epistemology. You have knowledge crisis and I have the good news and I read the best journalism. Um, like we have to, you can't just do the Ben Franklin effect as a strategy. Like you have to be going in like, Will you help me with this? And maybe maybe in your heart you're thinking, but you're the one who really needs help. But you have to actually be willing to receive that help. Um, and, and that's like the, the really tricky thing, recognizing not only that you can't fix people and that like, um, you know, a lot of this is going to have to be like the work of the Holy Spirit and there's only so much we can do. Um, but also that we're getting things wrong and we also don't know what we don't know. Um, and that they have, have, may have insights, uh, again, maybe not everything, like they may be giving you some bad advice that you need to dismiss, but like that they may have insights into, to our blind That's spots. Excellent. That I love well. the idea, Bonnie, of cultivation of virtues. You wouldn't necessarily, I, I think it was interesting that you brought that up because, you know, if you spend a lot of time, you know, reading, you know, academic philosophy and things about epistemology, you don't often hear like, attending to virtues is how you come to know the truth. But I, I see deep Christian resonance in this. And it, it reminds me of like N.T. Wright's epistemology of love. Um, Esther Meek is another Christian philosopher that mm -hmm. writes about how we come to know things is actually through properly loving reality. And there's something mm -hmm. about the cultivation of virtue mm -hmm. that we're not just talking about. To know something is to have like an agreement with a certain propositional statement. But, um, you know, it's like Verveke talks about, There's, it's about like adherence and conformity to reality. So just as this phone was like designed so that my hand would conform to it, um, 
to properly know something, I have to, I have to be willing to allow my life to conform to the truth. And that takes, that's an act of love. And so I, I'm, I'm deeply hopeful, Bonnie, mm-hmm. that like when I read something like this, which definitely has implications for those that aren't in the Christian story and Christian community, but I also feel a deep sense of excitement or optimism that within the Christian tradition, like we have the resources available to us to correct this. And you don't have to be a professional philosopher to grow an epistemology. I, th- I really do think, and maybe it's like the old charismatic and Pentecostal in me, that if you, if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you have the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, is the beginning of wisdom. And I, I do think there's something there, the cultivation of virtues, like you're saying, is, is you know, for... Mm-hmm. For Aristotle, the way that we would find or develop, have virtues developed in our life is by actually following like a moral exemplar. You know, there's a process of apprenticeship Mm -hmm. and we have that opportunity in Christian community where despite our differences, there are virtuous people in our lives that may be a decade or Mm -hmm. two beyond us that we can look towards. And so I see those virtues and in the growth and acquisition of those virtues, I think it allows us to more rightly see, right? Because if we have uh, hatred in us, or if we have these biases, we don't actually want to be conformed to reality as God has designed it to be. If we don't want that, we are going to shut ourselves off to certain things that might be true. So I, I just love, I love that you've called people um, to that. It's so, it's not what I was expecting, actually. It was not I was like expecting. No, like you mentioned really. like at least one point of influence. Like, where have been maybe some other additional points of influence that steered you in this direction to go? I think what we really need is the acquisition of virtues. Like, we really need this. We need something changed about who we are, and not just like more information or a different kind of information. What's led you to that conclusion? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what started steering me in that direction was there's so much talk about like misinformation and disinformation right now. And like, could we get the content moderation policies right so that the Russians can't interfere in our elections? Um, And I, I wrote an article about this several years ago where it was like, I mean, you can try to fine tune that all you want, but if people are still gullible, what's, what good is it going to do? Like the issue is not, the knowledge it's the knowers um and so as i've been describing like you know you have to do like little elevator pitches for your book and i i had a temptation early on to be like well it's about misinformation because that's something everybody's gonna be like oh yeah misinformation but it's really not about the information itself even though there's you know i spent a lot of time as you said describing talking about like media and like the information environment as exists but it's, it's really much more about like who we are engaging in that information environment because i don't know that, you know, on the one hand, the internet as we know it is still very new, like as far as a a technological revolution goes, like things got wild after the printing press came out, like, and were wild for like 100 plus years, we're we're 20 years in, like, things are going to be crazy, probably for our lifetimes. Um, And so it, it has to be about like, how are who are we as people engaging in that? 
Um, and and the, the good news is that even though like decades and centuries of Christians past did not have the internet to deal with, and it is a legitimately new thing, um, they, they did have talk about virtues and talk about things that like talk about how we are as people. And so those resources are available to us even as we're, we're in this very new space and this very new age of, I, of I'm totally stealing that line, uh, Bonnie. I want to repeat it again because it was so good <laughs> that it's not even so – it's not about the knowledge. It's about the knowers. And when we have like an infinite sea that's not going away anytime soon, an infinite sea of information accessible to us, there will always be the potentiality that we could have access to the wrong kinds that could shape us to the wrong things and we – what really you need to focus on is the knower. And I just think about like, I'll, I'll brag about a conversation mm-hmm. I had with my dad, maybe a year or two ago when a lot of this stuff was going on and he's like, had no idea what QAnon was. And he had saw that, you know, I got, you know, it was in a CNN article and he's like, wow, this is crazy. I had no idea about this stuff. And um, we started talking and he's like, you know, what I realized is that, um, you know, a lot of my friends, you know, he's a boomer. A lot of my friends are like, spend all their time on Facebook posting political stuff. And I realized Mm -hmm. in me that I'm paraphrasing a bit here what he said, but I didn't like the way that that made me feel. Didn't like what that was doing to me. I didn't like, because he realizes his role in his church community and he saw that it wasn't shaping him Mm -hmm. for his good. And when we again, maybe bring in the platonic idea to be rightly informed is to be rightly formed for our end, for the proper end. And um, I, I just think you nailed it. Like this is this is on us as knowers. And uh, so now we're now we're bringing in like spiritual formation. Now we're bringing in potential for like you know dealing with maybe even like particular emotional wounds or mental health challenges we might face that we need to bring others in community and to help us with, to be rightly formed together. Cause we can't just be autodidacts. Like we, we, we need, we need proper community. Yeah. Uh, I I'm just, I'm loving it. And like, I can't rave. I can't rave about this enough. I, I just encourage everybody. Um, pre-orders are available for this right now, Bonnie. Is that correct? Yes. That is correct, and um, at least as of right now, I, I suppose it could change by the time this is released, but probably not. Um, if you order straight from the publisher, which is Baker Books, you can get it for $10 off, so it's only like 14 or $15, bucks, um, and free shipping, which it's going to jump up to like 25 when it comes out. So That's great. Yeah, again, the, the name of the book is Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting christian community i highly recommend checking it out and i would say you know a lot of people that listen to this podcast certainly we have um you know scholars and academic guests on and they they might have books that you might go i I don't know if i could read that and really make sense of it this is you know pop it's really well written it's popular level accessible writing i think anybody in your church community you know with at least probably like a middle school or high school reading level can pick this up and, and really find it to be of of benefit. Bonnie, thanks so much for your time. I I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm going to do another proper read through uh, of the book and I'd love to, I'd love to keep having dialogues with you about, uh, about this subject matter and the other areas of, of true expertise that I think you bring um, to the conversation. That's, that's really special. (laughs) 
John, thanks, Paul. It's been a pleasure as usual. Well, I hope you found that conversation to be enriching, thought-provoking, maybe even challenging in some ways. If so, I'd love to hear from you. There's a discussion forum on my Patreon page for this episode and pretty much all of our episodes, at least dating back to the last two or three years. Um, It's a great place for you to not only connect with me, but to maybe have some engagement with other listeners from around the world. I welcome all sorts of comments, whether they are things you enjoyed about the podcast, maybe there's respectful disagreements. I don't mind getting those either. So feel free to leave those on the discussion forum for this this episode on Patreon. And uh, if you're not a Patreon supporter, that's okay too. You can reach out to me on Twitter or on Instagram as well. I love hearing from you. As of right now, I am speaking in a microphone in an office by myself. It's quite weird. (laughs) So if uh, unless I hear from you, it it feels very, very strange. So feel free to reach out to me with with any sorts of thoughts or questions, objections. I love hearing from all of you. And I do my best to respond um, to each of those, especially to the ones that that happen on, on Patreon as well. I want to give an extra special thanks to those who are supporting at a, a very generous level on Patreon. People like Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Jesse, John Mark, Johnny, Josie, Justin, Kirk, Lola, Luke, Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P, Sarah R, Stephen H, Taylor S. Thank you all for your generous support. I can't do this podcast without you. It's nice to not have to squish in, you know, advertisements for Bible software or I don't know what else I'd get advertisements for. Um, But at any rate, I'm glad that I don't have to do that and uh, your support keeps this afloat. Thank you so much. Uh, We are having, uh, this is being released on Tuesday. What's the date? Tuesday, August 16th, and then on Wednesday, August 17th um, at, boy, I'm going to have to nail down this time. I believe it's 7 p.m. Central. I should probably look that up before I say it. Yep, 7 p.m. Central. There's going to be a group discussion happening for those that are in Theology 201 or higher on Zoom. Uh, So you look for that link. I'll post that link tomorrow. If you're not a Theology 201 level supporter, uh, supporter or higher, there's still time to do so. And then you can jump in to our, um, our online video discussion for this episode and not just for this episode, for any other topic that, that comes up in our group. So these are really fun, really enriching times. Well, again, thank you all for your support. I look forward to hearing your feedback. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.